0: As we find our way there, just a reminder, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights, and we'll look to finish the book of Zechariah this evening, chapters 12, 13, and 14, if you want to read uh, ahead, 6 o'clock this evening, all of you are invited. Chapter 11, Revelation, verse 1. And then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days "...clothed in sackcloth, and these are the two olive trees, and the two lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. And if if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy." And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And then those of the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, their death make merry. Send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented them, those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God uh, entered them, and they stood on their feet, and and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, And a tenth of the city fell, in the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, behold the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, how in some way uh, and some working of your Holy Spirit that every single portion of Your Word conforms us a little more completely into the image of Your Son. And Lord, in our thinking, in our perspective, in our wisdom, in our knowledge, and we pray, Lord, that You would take our lives, they're Yours, bought and paid for, in Your Son, and that You would take the truths of what we'll look at today, build them into our relationship with You, build them into our understanding Uh, of the world around us. Build into us, Lord, uh, a heart and a, uh, a desire to know truth and to live the truth for the sake of those that are not yet Christians all around us every day. And we pray and we ask for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember, as I mentioned last week, that the book of Revelation is best understood as being a chronology, uh, a chronological account of the unfolding of the sealed judgments followed by the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that make up uh, the majority of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And, uh, but every so often in the course of this chronology, God uh, kind of uh, punctuates what it is that's being laid out there with what is known as a parenthetical statement. He does a pause, an interlude, in which before continuing on in the progression, He wants to fill us in on some details uh, so that we can follow what's happening uh, and have things be clear for us. It occurs... Uh, the parenthetical statement between in chapter 7 between the end of the sealed judgments, the beginning of the trumpet judgments, and then here now again at the end of the trumpet judgments and before the bowl judgments. Actually chapters uh, 10 all the way through uh, chapter 15 our parent is a parenthetical statement uh, it 's a pause on things, except for uh, a part of the chronology that 's found uh, uh, at the end of this chapter. Now, in chapter 10, we were introduced to this mighty angel in the little uh, book, the little scroll, and here in chapter 11, we're introduced to the ministry of two men who are known in the book of Revelation as the two uh, witnesses. The description of their lives, of their ministry, really dominates the entire uh, chapter of chapter 11, but today I only want to examine the first two verses of the chapter because it contains information— that is not only required to fully understand uh, their ministry as we come to it, God willing, next week, but also uh, to understand uh, the entire subject of the Bible's teaching concerning the end times, that period of time that leads up to Jesus' second coming. And the thing we want to focus on this morning is the mention of the existence of a Jewish temple Uh, in the city of Jerusalem during the tribulation period, as it's spoken of there in verse 1. I mean, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and there's been no Jewish temple in Jerusalem since then. There is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem uh, to this day. So how in the world does one just suddenly show up uh, in this account of the tribulation period? And it's kind of shocking if we understand anything a little bit about the Bible. Here we are, we're reading through the Revelation, and then suddenly we read about a temple being built, and that it's in fully in use by the Jews uh, during the tribulation period. And so I've entitled the message this morning, uh, Measure the Temple, as John is encouraged uh, in- in- to do here. Uh, Say what? I mean, you, I know there's some of us sit here today and, we might be thinking, what's the big deal about a temple during uh, the, the tribulation period? And let me explain briefly briefly about the origin and the, and the purposes and the history of the Jewish temple. The origin of the Jewish temple some uh, three months after their exodus from the land of Egypt while they were making their way Uh, from Egypt and that bondage that they'd been released from uh, toward the land of Canaan. The children of Israel came to a mount called Mount Sinai and uh, where God called Moses to approach him up on the mount and where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He gave him a broader number of commandments than the ten, uh, a total of 613 commandments Uh, uh, that constitute what is known as the law of Moses. And then he also gave him a commandment to build a tabernacle. And he included the exact specifications for the building of this tabernacle and all of the materials that were to be used in its construction. The tabernacle was essentially a a very, very elaborate uh, tent. And it was a precursor, a forerunner, to uh, what would be built later to replace it, and that is the, the Jewish temple. That would be built by Solomon, uh, Solomon, David, King David's son, some 400 years later in Jerusalem. During the Exodus, and, and through Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, before entering the promised land... Uh, the time involved the, uh, the wandering in that wilderness. The time also involved the conquest of the land ultimately when they went in the early years of, of the nation of the land of Israel. And so during that entire period, portability uh, was vital in terms of some kind of a place to meet with God because they were always on the move. Uh, during all of those years, and so a tent or a tabernacle, it fit the bill. It could be disassembled, uh, move with the people, and then be reassembled as as needed with a, with a kind of a pilgrim uh, population. But once Israel reached the the promised land, conquered the promised land, and then specifically, once King David conquered the city of Jerusalem, and he made it then the capital of the nation uh, of Israel, the nation was now securely settled in the land. There was no need for uh, portability in a worship structure. So a more permanent worship structure could be uh, built. And so with God's blessings... Uh, the tabernacle gave way to the temple, and uh, when King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. And God expressed his acceptance of both the tabernacle when it was built 400 years earlier, and his, his favor and his pleasure related to the building of, of the temple when it was finished by Solomon, when upon their completion a cloud descended uh, upon them, representing his presence, and the Lord filled the place. And one of the reasons that the idea of the of building of the temple, and uh, of the tabernacle, and later of the temple, all of that originated in God. It didn't originate in uh, Moses, it didn't originate in man. And that God gave Moses very specific instructions concerning its dimensions, the specific materials that were to be used in its construction, concerning the handful of furnishings that were to be a part of, of it. Uh, and, and the reason that God was so specific in his instruction is that the tabernacle and later the temple were patterned after heaven itself. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4, for if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, speaking of Jesus, since there are priests who uh, after the gifts uh, according, who offer gifts according to the law, who, speaking of the Old Testament priests, serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, God did to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Later again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves... With better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered in uh, entered the holy places places made with hands, speaking of heaven, and then in contrast to the temple which he describes as which are copies of the true, uh, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And repeatedly in the Book of Revelation we see this mention of a temple of God existing in heaven. For instance, at the very uh, end of this chapter, in verse 19, we read, then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and uh, an earthquake and great hail. So we see... The temple that exists in heaven and the tabernacle and the temple on the earth were models of, of this temple that, that uh, is in heaven. Now concerning the purposes of the Jewish temple and, and the tabernacle, it symbolized God's presence in their midst. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, God declared, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It symbolized God's presence in their midst. It was also the place to meet with God, to worship Him, uh, to praise Him, uh, to fellowship uh, with Him. And as a result, this tabernacle was known as the tabernacle of meeting. It was the place to meet with God. Exodus chapter 35, verse 21. It was also and all of the uh, sacrifices and activities that were associated with it. It communicated uh, things to the Jewish people. It communicated things to the world about God and about heaven. For instance, if even the high priest could not enter the holy of holies without offering a sacrifice for his sins, uh, if he couldn't enter the model of heaven without a sacrifice then you can be sure that you aren't going to enter the real deal of heaven without a sacrifice and all of it was intended to prepare the children of israel and the world for the one who would come as the lamb of god to take away the sin of the world to gain access for us into the true temple in, in heaven access into heaven everything about the temple everything about the tabernacle communicated that god loves mankind he wants a relationship with him but that he cannot be approached on man's terms he must be approached on his own terms on god's uh terms and that his terms involve being approached solely on the basis of sacrifice Solely on the basis of substitution, solely on the basis of the transference of our sin uh, from the guilty to the innocent, and so much more. And all of it speaking, as all of it did, and most importantly concerning the tabernacle and the temple, it was all a picture of Christ. It was all a shadow of Christ. It was all a type of... Uh, of Christ as Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life but these are they which testify of me all of this was pointing you to me and you're missing me the whole point of all of it and what it was intended to communicate concerning the history of the Jewish temple I mentioned a little bit about the history of the tabernacle, how it ultimately gave way to uh, the temple, uh, and uh, uh, wherein it would serve the temple, would serve the same purposes uh, as the tabernacle did, but now in a fixed position in the city of, of Jerusalem. But the temple had, uh, has uh, uh, took on a history of its own. With God's blessing again, Solomon finished the temple, what is known as the first temple, in 957 B.C. It was later destroyed by the Babylonians on their third invasion of Israel to finally put down uh, a rebellion of, of the Jews, but principally it w- the Babylonians were used as an instrument of God's judgment against the children of Israel because of their wickedness because of their uh, idolatry and as a part of the destruction of Jerusalem the temple was destroyed uh, by king nebuchadnezzar and and the result of all of it was that the jewish people went into a babylonian captivity for 70 years at the end of those 70 years the Uh Babylonian Empire was uh, defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. And the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire, a man by the name of Cyrus, he gave permission to the Jews to return to the land of Israel. After their absence there, with the the specific purpose of rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, which they did with God's blessing. They returned to rebuild the temple in uh, 515 B.C., and the rebuilt temple is known as the Second Temple. And then in 37 B.C., uh, King Herod, who was a, a governor in uh, in Judah, recognized as a governor, a leader as a part of the Roman Empire, and uh, he took the temple that had been built upon, the, the second temple built by the Jews when they came back, rebuilt by the Jews when they came back into the land, and he v- greatly expanded it and uh, beautified it uh, in order to... Um, gain favor with the Jewish people uh, because that's who he was ruling over. And that project of expanding that second temple, beautifying it, took a period of over 46 years. That's how uh, much time and effort was put in it. And this was the temple that stood in Jesus' day. Because this temple that Herod enlarged on and beautified, because it was... Uh, an enlargement of an existing temple, the second temple, that temple is still known as the second temple. It's referred to in that way. And then in 70 AD, just as Jesus had declared to the disciples on the night before His crucifixion, in, uh, the Jewish temple was so thoroughly destroyed uh, by the Romans that not one stone was left upon another. Uh, the, the Roman general Titus came in with four Roman legions, four very elite Roman legions, and they effectively brought a four-year Jewish rebellion against uh, the Roman Empire to an end. And since 70 A.D., there's been no Jewish temple represented on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now remember, when John writes the Revelation, it's 95 A.D., And so by the time he's writing the revelation, there has been no Jewish temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount for 25 years. It is gone. And then through the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48 of the book of Ezekiel, God prophesied of a future millennial temple that will be built in Jerusalem during the thousand year reign of Christ following his second coming when Jerusalem will not only become the center of the worship of of God uh, by the Jews, but also the center uh, of the worship of God for the entire uh, world. And so the Apostle John, in writing down all that he's seeing and hearing in this revelation, would have been just like us as we begin to read the first two verses of chapter 11. I know about the first and the second temples that were commanded to be built by God and built with His blessing. I know all about Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the second temple. I know all about the fulfillment of it. In 70 AD, I saw it with my own eyes. I know there's going to be a third temple built during the kingdom age, and it's going to enjoy God's blessing as well. So what in the world is this temple in chapter 11 that's going to come into existence during the tribulation without any authorization from God? Now, Before we get into that important question, I want to answer the question as to why there is and was no need for a physical temple located in Jerusalem between the destruction of it in 70 uh, 70 AD, the destruction of the second temple, and then the establishment of a new uh, temple uh, in the kingdom age. And the reason that there's no need for a temple to be rebuilt presently, and currently a physical temple uh, in the city of Jerusalem, and one of the reasons that God allowed it to be destroyed is because that physical temple has been replaced by a living temple. What the Bible declares in the New Testament as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the spirit lies in you. And so Paul says, "Don't you know this? It may be news to some of us, new to Christianity, even new to these kind of things, to understand that we are as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the world today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as Christians. We are indwelt, each and every one of us, by virtue of being Christians, by the Holy Spirit. And it is that Holy Spirit who keeps all of us united into a single purpose within the world. Imagine just keeping all of us in just one room, Uh, on a single page and focused on a single purpose, let alone how many Christians there are in the entire world. And the Holy Spirit uh, does that. And so what made the the temple of the Old Testament a special building wasn't its architecture. It wasn't uh, some other physical thing about it. What made it special was the presence of God there. The presence of the Holy Spirit there. And without the Holy Spirit, it would have just been one more religious structure or one more structure in the ancient world. Again, in the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of God. It uh, was a place where man might meet with God. It communicated to the entire world that God was interested in a relationship with mankind. It communicated the holiness of God. It was a place to come and learn about God. It was a place to come into contact with His glory. And it was a place to come into contact with His power. And now, because the Holy Spirit indwells us as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he now uses us to accomplish those very same things in the world. But because we are a living temple, and we are not located in just one geographical place in, in the world, you don't have to fly halfway around the world to come into contact with a building made with stone. All I need to do to experience these things is to find the nearest Christian. In order to come into contact with the presence of God, uh, to meet God, to learn of His desire to have a relationship with us, to learn of His holiness, to learn of what it is that He's like, to learn about God, to see the wisdom of God, to hear the wisdom of God through the life of a Christian, to encounter God's glory, to encounter His power. And all of that happens through us today. And I think about what an eternal significance this brings to our lives as Christians to live our lives knowing that this is what we represent when we come into contact with people in this world the very things that people traveled halfway around the world to encounter in Jerusalem they are to encounter out of our lives as the Holy Spirit fills our lives and overflows our lives well, all of that is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility that we, we carry as Christians by virtue of these blessings within our lives, this kind of a calling. So the question all of this raises, at least in my mind, I think of, of any sober-minded Christian, is, well, how exactly does this happen? How is it that my life becomes, to the world what you have just described. And how it happens is as we make Jesus the cornerstone uh, in our life that He is meant to be. And the Apostle Peter, he reminds us that Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple of the Holy Spirit. And that we are living stones in this living spiritual temple that exists in the world today through the body of Christ. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through uh, Jesus Christ. We are being built up a spiritual house But again, how are we being built up a spiritual house? The Apostle Paul answers that question. And he answers that question by declaring, it is as we make Jesus the cornerstone of our lives. The passage is found in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And what the the cornerstone, uh, chief cornerstone, was in the ancient world, it's a construction uh, term. A cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in any building that was laid physically. And in those days, they didn't go out and pour a bunch of concrete for the foundations of buildings. They found the biggest stones that they could find and they made that the foundation and the biggest stone and the truest stone that they could find, the cornerstone, then other stones for the foundation and then built smaller stones up upon those, uh, those stones. And concerning the cornerstone. The cornerstone was by far the most important stone in the building. Uh, and, uh, And second, every other stone in the building was measured off of that cornerstone. It was put in alignment with that cornerstone. And then third, as a result of that, every other stone that made up that building had a relationship with the cornerstone. And it was only as every stone had a healthy relationship with the cornerstone that a building could be safe and sound. It could only be uh, safe and sound if those things were true of it. And what the Apostle Paul is communicating is that what's true of the relationship of a physical cornerstone to a physical uh, building, is also intended to be true of Jesus and every Christian. He is to be the most important stone or part of our life. Just as every other stone in a building was tied to that cornerstone, it had a relationship with that cornerstone, uh, and, uh, and, and we are operating effectively and safely uh, only as, as a living temple, only as, as that is true of our life. As we measure our life, wh- how we live, how we think, what comes out of our mouth, we measure everything about our life off of that, that cornerstone and then uh, and then what will be the result of that what does jesus bring to a life that makes him their chief cornerstone makes him the most important part uh, of our lives uh, that cornerstone he will provide a solid foundation for our lives that we would never otherwise know that we would never know unless he is that cornerstone he's the one that brings that Solid and movable foundation to our lives. He then brings stability into our lives. He brings a completeness into our lives. He'll hold our lives together and He will produce a life that is solid and sure and safe and beautiful. Isn't Christianity terrible? And so we return to the question So, what in the world is this temple? in chapter 11 uh, that is going to come into existence during the tribulation without any authorization uh, from God. And the temple that we read about here and elsewhere concerning this temple in the tribulation period has caused this temple to be referred to as the tribulation temple. And it's not okay with God. It's not kosher with Him. It will not be built as a result of His command for it to be rebuilt the rebuilding of this temple will be a man initiated uh thing and it will be the result of a continued determination of the jewish people to reject jesus as their messiah to move forward in their spiritual history without him as if he is no consequence to them and to do so in cooperation with the antichrist And you notice the mention of an altar as well in verse 1. Commentators and Bible scholars are divided as to whether this altar refers to the brazen altar, where the animal sacrifices were offered to God, or the altar of incense, where representing prayer which was in the holy place within uh, the interior of the temple itself. If it refers to the brazen altar, where sacrifices are offered then this communicates an open rejection of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. And it embraces the idea that salvation is attained on the basis of my own works as opposed to uh, grace. If it refers to the altar of incense, then it communicates that a relationship with God, including prayer, can occur independent of Jesus. And it is a denial of Jesus' teaching when he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And everything about this tribulation temple is an affront to God. It is an insult to Jesus Christ, and it is an insult to the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of uh, grace. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all uh, an insult uh, to the entire uh, Godhead, this temple as it's, it's built. You notice that John is instructed here not only to measure the dimensions of the temple, but he is also instructed to measure those who worship them. In other words, how they measure up spiritually independent of Jesus Christ. And how do they measure up? Just like everybody else. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and God notices all of it. And today you have the Jews in their own land, and they've strengthened their hold on their land legitimately uh, so. They don't live in any kind of particular terror that any of their neighbors are going to drive them into the sea or going to uh, uh, annihilate uh, them. And now, with these kind of things, their grip so secure now upon the land, it's only natural that their focus would uh, gradually turn to the right of a temple on the Temple Mount. And one of the things that you can ask yourself is, why is the temple uh, and the rebuilding of the temple, why is this so important uh, to the Jews? And uh, one famous uh, rabbi of the Jews, he explained the importance of this to religious Jews by declaring that fully 200 of the 613 commandments of the law of Moses cannot be kept without a temple. And so you put yourself in their shoes and you realize how this drive is never going to stop inside of them uh, independent of Christ, to rebuild that temple. Now, unfortunately, the Bible teaches that before the legitimate building of this third temple in the millennium, that after Jesus, and that occurs after Jesus' second coming, the nation of Israel is going to enter into a covenant with the Antichrist during the tribulation period uh, to worship God in an illegitimate uh, building of the temple. And how that comes about uh, is upon his ascension, the Antichrist's ascension into world power. Uh, He is uh, presiding over the world-ruling empires. Uh, uh, He he leads the world-ruling empire uh, of that day, centered in Europe. The Antichrist enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years. Daniel chapter 9. As a part of that covenant that he makes with the Jewish people, he will allow them to reinstitute their sacrifices. And it requires a temple to reinstitute uh, their sacrifices and their offerings, as detailed in the Law of Moses. Speaking of the Antichrist, uh, the prophet Daniel was told by the angel Gabriel uh, concerning all of this on behalf of God Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven, corresponding to the seven-year tribulation period, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. When he talks about this covenant with many, the word many refers to the Jews because they're the subject of the entire prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, when God declared uh, in in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, 77s are determined for your people and your holy city. Now, I'm inclined to believe that following God's defeat of Magog, uh, perhaps Russia, coming out of the north and an attack against Israel, uh, as Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes uh, as... As there is this God's defeat of Magog, his defeat of many of the Islamic nations that join Magog in, a, in an attempt to wipe Israel out and, uh, and principally among those Islamic nations uh, uh, being uh, uh, Iran. When they try and invade, they, God will rise up and he will destroy those armies, seven-eighths of those invading armies will be destroyed. That is a uh, massacre in terms of of military uh, kind of a a slaughter that will happen there. And not only will will this decisive military victory punch uh, Russia in the nose, uh, and allowing the Antichrist then to bring that confederation of nations centered in Europe into world prominence, but this decisive defeat of so many Islamic nations, again foremost among them being Iran, will leave the Islamic world so humbled and, and so broken that the Antichrist will be able to do what he could never otherwise do without starting World War III. And that is to allow the Jews to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount, just a stone's throw away from the Dome of the Rock uh, Mosque. And to to do so without any resistance from the Islamic world. And this temple that's described here in verses 1 and 2, it it will be fully functioning during the seven-year tribulation period. But that same passage in, in Daniel chapter 9, it also informs us that at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation, the three-and-a-half-year uh, mark, that the Antichrist will break his covenant, his agreement with the Jewish people, and he will commit an abomination against them and against the temple that they've built that, that, this, that it is referred to as the abomination that causes uh, desolation. He will wake up one day halfway through the tribulation period. He will walk into the holy of holies of the rebuilt temple. He will sit down there, he will declare himself to be God, and he will demand to be worshipped as God by the entire uh, world. And in that moment, every Jewish heart is going to realize that they have been fooled by uh, this man, they've been deceived by him. Paul writes of this very thing in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 4 Jesus spoke of it in his Olivet discourse but 2nd Thessalonians Paul writes of the antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and uh, or, or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, speaking of the very same thing. He warns the Jewish people. Uh, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run for your lives, Jesus says to the Jews at that, at that, at that time. It's part of their wake-up call. Because what's going to happen is the Antichrist, after he commits this abomination that causes desolation, is he will unleash a a murderous persecution of the Jewish people uh, in that second half uh, of the tribulation. And uh, I'm inclined to believe that this temple that they build during the tribulation period is going to be destroyed at Jesus' second coming, He alights on the Mount of Olives, and there is a great split that occurs in the Mount of Olives. It'll be split in two from the east, uh, from east to west, uh, and uh, and in order to make way then for the millennial temple uh, and whatever kind of other land problems that will occur with this kind of movement of the earth, somehow this temple is going to be uh, destroyed. And, uh, and give way to the millennial temple, but for the remaining three and a half years of the tribulation, it, it, interesting to realize, it appears that the Antichrist then makes this rebuilt temple that he then defiles, he makes it the headquarters of the worship of him during the tribulation period by means of an idol and, uh, and this worship of him he'll demand of everyone uh, uh, upon the earth under the threat of death. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 13. And so their refusal to accept Jesus, and uh, uh, the Jewish refusal because of his claim to deity, uh, his, his claim to be the Son of God, to be divine, to be equal with God the Father, and, and to, to, not, to reject Jesus because of his claim to deity, despite the fact that of the Old Testament witnesses to the fact that the fact that when Messiah comes into the world, he will be divine. And believing in large part, as the Jewish, religious Jewish people do today, that when their Messiah comes, he will be first merely a man, just like Moses. He won't be divine, he'll just be a man. And then the second thing they're looking for in the Messiah is that he will facilitate the offering of sacrifices, he will allow them to rebuild their temple and reinstitute. Uh, their sacrifices, and uh, all of this leaves them wide open for this coming deception. And all of it's exactly as Jesus said would be the case. uh, As he declared, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Speaking to the Jewish people. And he said, another will come in his own name and you will receive him. And it will be a terrible, terrible deception. Now don't give up on the Jews uh, concerning all of this. Because God hasn't given up on the Jewish people, and, uh, and He never will give up on the Jewish people. All of this that we read about here, and so much that's going to occur in the coming chapters, all of this is a part of a needed process for them to be willing to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And yes, by and large, they are so hard-hearted toward Jesus that it will take all of this and more in order for them to be humbled and to trust in Him. But massive numbers of Jews will come to know Christ in addition to Gentiles during the tribulation period. And a huge number of Jews will come to know and recognize Jesus as their Messiah at His second coming. And nobody knew more about how hard-hearted the Jews could be toward Jesus as their Messiah than the Apostle Paul. He's a poster child for that very same thing. And yet he writes to us as Gentile Christians in Romans chapter 11. I say then, Have they stumbled that they should fall, speaking of the Jewish people, as God through with them? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, how much more wonderful will it be when they become in massive numbers uh, followers of Christ as well? For if they're being cast away, is the reconciling of the world. What will be uh, their acceptance except life uh, from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking of Gentile uh, believers, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. Don't look down uh, on the Jews. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And you will say branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And if you were cut out of the olive tree... Uh, which is wild by uh, nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion." that blindness in part has happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness among Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. So you might have noticed this morning that this sermon... Is fairly technical uh, in terms of laying this out. I not only knew it in preparing it, but it was confirmed to me as I saw some of your faces in the course of this sermon. (laughs) And if all of this is new to you, uh, this is how we learn. And the Bible is meant to be understood. And so, the next time, it'll make more sense. And the next time, it'll make more sense. And so don't give up on the importance of of these things and, and of, this, of this subject. But knowing these things sets the stage for understanding the ministry of the two prophets, which we'll look at, God willing, next week. And without understanding these things, we will, will have great difficulty making any sense of the rest of the book of Revelation and any sense of much of the prophetic picture that is found in the Scriptures. And so anything worth learning requires learning it. And so it is very, very important and and important that we spend the time at it this morning. And the understanding of the first temple, the second temple, the tribulation temple, the millennial uh, temple, it all plays an important part in understanding what the Bible teaches about the last days, Uh, prior to Jesus' second coming, and then even afterwards. But it also reminds us, I think, this morning of the privilege and the responsibility that is ours as Christians, and the incredible realization that I am a part of a living temple. I am one of the people in this world that God is free to bring people that are searching for Him, wanting to know Him, wanting to encounter Him, wanting to encounter His power, His glory, His wisdom, that He can bring those people to me and encounter those things. And for those things to be true of all of us as Christians, the incredible privilege of being a, a part of this living temple of the Holy Spirit in the world today and then the responsibility of it. And it never hurts me to be reminded of that. That this is my great function after my relationship with God in the world. That I bring these things into the unsaved world around me. That the world doesn't have to come to some set place in Jerusalem or Rio de Janeiro or Omaha, Nebraska in order to encounter these things. All they need to do is find the nearest Christian and to have these things pouring forth from our lives. What an amazing, amazing privilege. What significance it gives to our lives. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You for being our cornerstone. We thank You for the foundation that You have brought into our life and with it the stability in our life that we would never otherwise know. We thank You for the beauty and the meaning and the purpose that You bring into our lives. And we thank You for the privilege of being one of these living stones of this building of which you are the chief cornerstone. And to be a place, to be a person where people can encounter God any time, day or night, all day, every day. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of this incredible calling and this incredible privilege in our lives as Christians. We pray that you would help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to internalize this great truth, to take it maybe for a walk today, and to rethink our lives in such a way uh, that we see our lives as not merely being saved and on our way to heaven, as wonderful as all of that is, but the glory of what you accomplish in us and then through us in the world today. And that the privilege that is found in all of this would be actually happening in each one of our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that You would do that. Thank You so much for the perspective that Your Word brings, the understanding of the world around us that Your Word word brings, the pieces that it puts together for us. And we thank You for this time that we've spent in Your Word on this subject this morning.